An eventful day. Uh, oh, well, what's going on? <laughs> um, I was leading worship at a church this afternoon at the Chinese church. And the technical stuff, you know, not, none of it worked. Um, it, I was just let down by technology. But that's normal. And that happens. And so we had a backup plan and it went well. Uh, it was a very encouraging message. I think everyone really enjoyed coming together and hearing God's word. And that's just how, the, how it works. You know, you see what you see on the screen is not at all what happens behind the scenes. Um, and I think just being prepared, uh, just constantly encouraging one another. It's okay. You know, we are here to, you know, for one another. You know, God has brought us together, you know, in Christ and forgiving one another. All of that just really helps, you know, to to make the time worthwhile, whether it's on Zoom or whatever platform you're using. I think even in person, you know, things still go wrong. But there you go. Uh, that was my Sunday. <laughs> yeah. How was it for you? Uh, full respect to you if you guys do technical stuff for your church live streams. Uh, there's just so many balls to be juggling in the air. Uh, why don't we start with the show? Uh, welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Uh, it's Sunday. 4 p.m. or so. I'm not sure I'm going to get through all four passages today. Um, we're looking at Genesis 18, Matthew 17, Nehemiah 7, Acts 17. Maybe we'll get through two passages today. Uh, but let me begin by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you that in the midst of everything that goes wrong, we trust in you as our good God who is always in control. Uh, in a way, I think this is just a reminder not to put our trust, our hope in temporary things like technology, but to trust in an everlasting God who's given us that everlasting promise in Christ, that salvation, that blessing, that hope in Him. So Lord, that's where we pin our sights and our hopes and our hearts right now, looking into your word and looking upward to Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Amen. Hello again. This is live from Cambridge. And we do this every day. We look at four different passages in the Bible. And we try to encourage each other mainly to just keep going on. Keep going on looking at God's word together. Genesis chapter 17, 18. Sorry. Yahweh appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and saw that three men stood near him. When he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself to the, gr to the ground, to the earth, and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please don't go away from your servant. Now let a little water be fetched. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will get a piece of bread so you can refresh your heart. After that, you may go your way now that you have come to your servant. They said, Very well, do as you have said. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three seahs of fine meal kneaded and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and fetched a tender and good calf and gave it to the servant. He hurried to dress it. He took butter, milk, and the calf which he had dressed, and set it before them. He stood by them under the tree, and they ate. They asked him, Where is Sarah, your wife? 
he said, there in the tent. He said, I will certainly return to you at about this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah heard in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. Um, Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, will I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Will I really bear a child when I am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the set time I will return to you, when the season comes around, and Sarah will have a son. Then Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Let's, um, yeah, let's, let's pause here and just look at Abraham's hospitality, welcoming these three strangers that he'd never met before. And he initially just says to them, you know, I'm just get, going to get you some water, you know, a piece of bread <laughs> that you can refresh your heart. Obviously, he doesn't just get a piece of bread. He prepares this feast. He gets his wife to knead the flour and to bake cakes. And he gets his servant to sacrifice this calf. And he lays before them this feast. And it shows Abraham's hospitality of these strangers. I think he probably recognized that there was something special about these visitors, uh, partly from, we get a clue from the way that he uh, addresses them, my Lord, um, very, very um, humbly bowing himself before them. Uh, but also this was, um, I think it shows his character as well, that welcoming, that embracing of uh, visitors into his home. Uh, Hebrews 13 says, um, what does it say? I should look it up. Something about uh, entertaining strangers. Hebrews 13 something, right in the beginning. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, no, there. Okay. Um, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I'm pretty sure he was thinking of Abraham. You know, entertaining angels. And it says here, without knowing it, maybe he didn't quite get the full grasp that it was God who was eating his food. But how wonderful it is, you know, that Christians and believers in God will be the most hospitable, the most welcoming. And I think I can say from experience that really has been the case. Uh, I remember the pastor of the church that I go to now, just down the road, I actually met him for the first time, not here as a student in Cambridge, uh, but back in Singapore, so I already left Cambridge and he'd actually visited my church in Singapore, never met him before. And my church back in Singapore welcomed him by giving him this huge meal. I remember <laughs> it was it was funny because just before that, um, uh, my pastor in Singapore welcoming this pastor from the UK said, who's this guy? Can we trust him? <laughs> Is he biblical? And I said, I think so. I don't really know him either. But he was a stranger and they welcomed him. They had a whole staff meet him. They took him up to this huge makan. Makan means lunch, dinner thing, this Chinese banquet meal. I remember there were actually several tables. Everyone went out together. And um, uh, what's remarkable is that years later, uh, that same pastor who welcomed this pastor came to Cambridge and he was 
um, welcomed by this pastor's um, uh, replacement. He died actually, sadly, uh, years after that. This was a guy named Mark Ashton. Uh, and later on, the current pastor welcomed this pastor from Singapore. Again, he didn't really know him, never met him before, but actually let him stay at his, his home. I remember he, he actually even cooked for him. He was really, really generous. And, and, you know, it just says a lot about the character. We can have people who have integrity, who hold on to the faithfulness of the Bible, but also loving towards strangers, you know, always wanting to make friends with people whom they don't quite know, and to make and to find good friends, people who can almost be partners with them in the gospel. Another maybe useful verse to look at is what Jesus says. So Jesus says towards the end of the parable of the sheep and the goats, he says, da, 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 da. Um, yeah, he says here, um, mm -hmm. yeah, okay, all right. So um, they say, when did we see you? said, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, verse 35, I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And they say, when did we see you? You know, what you, the one, what you did, did for the least of the brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So it's almost like welcoming Jesus yourself into your home, into your lives, and with your generosity. Um, that's something that's commendable for Christians to do. Yeah, so let's carry on with the story in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, where, where, do, where do we leave off here? Um, verse 16. The men rose up from there and looked towards Sodom. Abraham went with them to see them on their way. Yahweh said, Will I hide from Abraham what I do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. Excuse me just had lunch for i have known him to the end that he may command his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of yahweh to do righteousness and justice to the end that yahweh may bring on abraham that which he has spoken of him yahweh said because the cry of sodom and gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous i will go down now and see whether their deeds are as bad as the report which have come to me if not i will know the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before Yahweh. Abraham came near and said, Will you consume the righteous within the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous within the city? Will you consume and not spare the place for the fifty righteous who are in it? May it be far from you to do things like that, to kill the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be like the wicked. May that be far from you, shouldn't the judge of all the earth do right? Yahweh said, if I find Sodom fifty, if I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, See now I have taken it on myself to speak to the Lord, although I am dust and ashes. What if there will be lack five of the fifty righteous? Will you destroy all the city for lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, What if there are 40 found there? He said, I will not do it for the 40's sake. He said, Oh, don't let the Lord be angry and I will speak. What if there are 30 
found there. He said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, See now, I've taken it on myself to speak to the Lord. What if there are twenty found there? He said, I will not destroy it for the twenty's sake. He said, Oh, don't let the Lord be angry, and I will speak just once more. What if ten are found there? He said, I will not destroy it for the ten's sake. Yahweh went on his way as soon as he was, had finished communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So here's this kind of like a bargaining thing with God, you know, bargaining whether God would destroy this whole city if he found just a few people in there who weren't wicked, who weren't sinful. And he starts from 50. Says, if you find 50, you know, will you spare everyone else if there were just 50 people in this city? And God says, yeah. Goes down 45, goes down 40, 30, 20, and down to 10. And then God leaves his way and Abraham goes home. And the question there would be, why doesn't Abraham go lower? <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's gone this far. You know, and he's already bargained with God. If you find 10 people, imagine if God were tonight to destroy the whole city of Cambridge. And you were to say to God, if there are 10 people in this whole city who were righteous and not wicked, who were good and not evil, would you spare everyone else, the 200,000 people in this whole city? And God is essentially saying to Abraham, yes, yes, I would. That's a remarkable, that's a remarkable bargain, you know, that 10 people could make a difference for the entire city. But why not less than 10? Why not nine? Why not even one? Because I think the answer is, well, Abraham knows this, there are none. They're not even 10, right? All of us are wicked. God could destroy Cambridge the way that He's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because there are not 10 righteous people, even, even with good churches here. And I, and I, I say that um, knowing that there are fantastic, you know, gospel-speaking churches. But it's the, these very churches, these very Christians who know that we are not, we are not blameless. You know, because of us, you know, we, we would bring judgment on this city. And this shows then, you know, the extent in which grace needs to go. It needs to cover not just the few who are righteous, but all who are unrighteous, all like me. All, you know, it's, it's salvation is not salvation of the few who are good, but of the many who are evil, many who are like me. And, you know, thank God that in the end, you know, God pours out his judgment, not on us, but on Jesus. Hmm. So we're thinking, you know, I wonder if many of us have this kind of bargaining attitude when it comes to God. You know, we want something from God. We want God to spare us from that particular situation. And we say, oh, you know, if I do this little bit of good, you know, will you spare me of that situation? You know, that's how we understand grace, right? We bargain with God. That's a very Asian thing to do. We bargain. We try to lower down the threshold of what we need to pay in order to get that fullness of grace. But no, grace doesn't work that way. <clears throat> grace is covering over all of our sin, all that we don't deserve, and all that he has paid on the cross. That's Genesis chapter 18. 
Second passage, Matthew chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them into a high mountain by themselves. He was changed before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as the light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Wow. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, let's make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were very afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up and don't be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Don't tell anyone what you saw <coughs> until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. His disciples asked him, saying, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered them, Elijah indeed comes first and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has come already, and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they wanted to. Even so, the Son of Man will also suffer by them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptizer. When they came to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is, an he is epileptic and suffers grievously, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Jesus answered, Faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it went out of him, and the boy was cured from that hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why weren't we able to cast it out? He said to them, Because of your unbelief. For most certainly, I tell you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind doesn't go out except by prayer and fasting. While they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will rise, he will be raised up. They were exceedingly sorry. When he had come to Capernaum, those who collected the didrachma coins came to Peter and said, Doesn't your teacher pay the didrachma? He said, Yes. <laughs> when he came into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think? Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth receive toll or tribute? From their children or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Therefore the children are exempt, but lest we cause them to stumble, go to the sea, cast a hook, 
and take up the first fish that comes up. When you've opened its mouth, you will find a stator coin. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Okay, so it begins with Jesus' Superman moment. <laughs> you know how Superman, just before he um, becomes Superman, you know, his Clark can is running down the alley and he rips open his shirt and you can see the S, ta-da, Superman. And so here Jesus kind of like reveals his S, ta-da, Savior <laughs> to, to three of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John. So he took them to this mountain. And it says there he is changed. Some translations have uh, transfigured. But change, change is actually a perfectly good uh, translation. He was just transformed. You know, he looked very different. That is, he reflected now the fullness of his glory, that Superman um, kind of like revealing, say, hey, look here, Superman. Uh, and this follows on from the previous chapter, at the end of which Jesus makes this prediction. He says, um, most certainly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in, the, in his kingdom. Let me say, see, you know, this glory of this Son of Man, this judge, this God's chosen king. And then they see this. So this follows on from this prediction that Jesus says. Some of you guys here, you're going to see something special. And so that's the special thing that they see here. Jesus brings just a few of them, not all the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up this mountain. And they see him change with his face like the sun. His clothes became super white, you know, almost emanating light. And suddenly he has these two friends, Moses and Elijah, <laughs> uh, appearing before him and talking with him. And so Moses and Elijah um, could be representative of the Old Testament, you know, the law and the prophets, Moses having the Ten Commandments law, and Elijah, you know, as the prophets. But it also could be talking about the stages of the Old Testament, you know, the giving of the law. And Elijah, what the prophets did was often pointing people back to the covenant of the law, how the people had broken the covenant and all the prophets were sent by God as covenant enforcers. Hey, you guys, get back to the law. And so both are probably aspects of that when, if you're thinking why these two individuals per se. But Peter sees Jesus, Moses, and Elijah and says, let me build some tents. And it's a very significant thing that Peter is suggesting here. I was actually um, visiting St. Peter's Basilica and, and and actually this verse, I think I saw this uh, painted on the walls um, as uh, we were queuing to go in and say, Lord, it is good for us to be here. As if it was this profound thing that Peter was was saying. I think Mark's gospel says that he didn't know what to say, therefore he said this. <laughs> he, he was just saying stuff that he didn't really understand. He says, oh, it's so good. Let's build a tent so that you can stay here, so they can stay here longer. You know, maybe they're staying over for dinner, so he, I'll build some tents. Let me do something for you, in other words, Peter is saying. Uh, build these tents. But the moment he says this, something dramatic happens. This cloud comes down and envelopes the whole mountain. They can't see anything and they're bowing down and trembling until Jesus reaches down, taps on the shoulder and says, get up. And they open their eyes and they see nothing. 
Before that, a voice comes up from the cloud, and this cloud is symbolic of God's presence. Think again of the cloud or the smoke that fills up the temple whenever it's dedicated by Solomon, when it's dedicated by Moses at the end of Exodus chapter 40. This cloud, the Shekinah glory, is symbolic of God's presence filling this space, in this case, this mountain, and God's voice thunders over them. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And he says there, listen to him. Listen to him. And the first words they hear are from Jesus. Get up and don't be afraid. And this is God's authenticating voice saying that this is Jesus. Therefore, you should listen to what he says. Some of us wish we could see God and therefore we will know it's really him. Some of us might wish, you know, we could see this true Superman moment and, and then we'll know that Jesus really has come to save me. But God himself says, the way in which you know that Jesus really is Jesus, he really is the Christ, is by listening. Listening, not seeing, but listening to what he says. And that's why the moment they opened up their eyes, they saw nothing except Jesus alone. That's the symbolism here. One day we will see. One day, one day we will. Jesus as he is. We will see him coming in glory. We will see this sight. He will be revealed to the entire world. But until then, this is God's word to us. Listen to him. Recognize his voice. And know that he is who he is as the Savior and as the Christ. They're coming down the mountain. And Jesus says, she tells them, don't tell anyone what you saw until after the resurrection. And they ask him this curious question. Why does it say that Elijah must come? And you might think, didn't we just see Elijah over there? <laughs> and maybe that's what prompted the question. Why is it that the Old Testament says that Elijah has to come first? And this is a reference to Malachi uh, chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, uh, if you have your Bibles, Malachi is the very last book in our English Bibles uh, in the Old Testament. So here it is. And so if you turn to Malachi chapter 4, the next page is already the New Testament. So it's the very last page, very last chapter. And it says here uh, at the end, uh, I will send uh, Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Meaning the way in which you know that that day of judgment will come is that Elijah comes first to prepare the way, to, to set people's hearts towards their children. It means to make them repent, in other words. Um, there is also a reference here in chapter 3. You know, God says he will send his messenger, his Malachi. And again, and then after that, God will come. In both predictions, you know, it says that Elijah will come first to prepare, to call people to repentance. And here, the significant thing about Matthew 17 is it connects the dots to John the baptizer because Jesus says Elijah has already come. If you have eyes to see, if you're able to understand what God is doing through the gospel, through the ministry of John the baptizer calling people to repentance, essentially Jesus is saying, you're waiting for something that has already happened. Isn't that something? You know, um, sometimes you have people holding up placards, the day of the Lord is coming. And essentially, Jesus is saying to people who hold those placards, it's already here. <laughs> what you're waiting for. And sometimes you're waiting for is so that then you will do something. 
if you saw like the asteroids coming from the sky, if you saw Jesus returning, then go, oh yes, oh now I repent. But Jesus is essentially saying, if you hear the gospel, you will know that God's final days of judgment are already here. Now is the time to respond to salvation. I feel I need to stop there, otherwise, you know, this will turn into lots and lots of long sermons. <laughs> um, what else should we can we say here? Um, importance of prayer and fasting. You know, there's um, the moment they come down from this high mountain situation of seeing Jesus in His glory. Then you meet these other disciples, these other uh, peoples who are faithless. You know, um, that's the reality of ministry. You can have those moments where you see Jesus as he truly is and you, you get that glimpse and then you come down and you see, hey, people are basically just generally disbelieving on Jesus and turning those hearts. You know, that's, that's the thing. You see, uh, you think that Jesus is talking about casting out this demon and that's true, you know, that's, that's the very difficult thing. How come we can't deal with this particular kind of demon? But Jesus uh, connects this impossible miracle with faithlessness. What you're trying to deal with in terms of prayer and fasting is not just casting out this particular demon or doing this miracle, but causing people to trust in Him. It's the problem of faith. Faithlessness is just such a hard thing to deal with, getting people to change their hearts and trust in God. Um, there's a reference here, you know, to the moving of the mountain. Um, um, read Zechariah chapter 14. You know, it's again uh, within the context of the coming of the day of the Lord, every mountain will be leveled, you know, and that nothing will stay in the, in, will keep in the way of, of God's coming. And essentially here Jesus is saying, if you were to pray for God to come, you know, God would come. That's the kind of prayer of faith, the trust of faith, that mustard seed faith that Jesus is talking about. It's not praying for a BMW. It's not praying for some kind of tremendous blessing. It's praying for God's will, God's kingdom to be here on earth. Um, and then this is followed by Jesus' prediction. This is, I think, the second prediction of his death. Son of man will be delivered up to the hands of men. Notice again, you know, the Son of Man is in glory, you know, on the mountain, and this glorious judge is going to be handed over to judges. They will judge him. They will kill him, and then he will rise up again. Um, ends with this episode about paying this didrachma, means two drachma coins. And this was a temple tax, uh, meaning if you're a good Jew, you know, if you're a religious person, you would pay to support this ministry, in other words. And Jesus essentially is answering that question in terms of, you know, do you pay to your own family? You know, the kings, they collect uh, tribute from outsiders, not insiders. And Jesus is talking about his status, that his father, you know, therefore won't collect this kind of interest from his own son. It shows his status and his relationship with God but interestingly, Jesus still pays it. <laughs> Jesus says, you know, go out, you know, throw, cast this, go and catch a fish, take the fish, open up the fish, and then you'll find uh, this coin and this data coin um, um, more than enough to pay the half shekel, you know, and is it, it, it means ample. You know, Jesus uh, does fulfill all these, you know, uh, stipulations. He, he doesn't cause unnecessarily, necessarily trouble. 
But when even as he does this, you know, he shows that his privilege, he is there. He doesn't take advantage of that, in other words. So, yeah, I think uh, I'm going to stop here. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's a good place to stop. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Jesus, as your Son, as our Savior, and as our God, you know, humbles himself to the cross. Even as we see that glimpse of glory, we need to turn to the cross where we see our shame, where, you know, that's his glory. That's him showing us just how good and gracious and forgiving he is. And Lord, you know, help us to do the same. You know, we live in a times of much faithlessness and we see the condition of our own hearts. And Lord, please, would you change us? You know, would you send your spirit, cause us to not be so hardened against your word? You know, we, we do that. We hear it and we just keep turning away. Help us not to do that. Help us to receive it. Help us to love this word, to speak of it, to share it, and to want to live it out. Just that want is just something that I need, I think. And Lord, thank you so much that Jesus just shows us that way. You know, having that privilege, having that status, and having that role that you've given him in the new kingdom, he comes to us in such, such humility as our teacher, as our savior, and as our friend. So thank you for him. And we pray that we'll continue to walk closely alongside him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll pick up again at 6 o'clock and we'll look at the other two passages. See you. Bye.